SCP-6500. Inevitable. Part 2. A force of entropy is destroying anomalies, hastened by any efforts on the Foundation's part to contain them. And while that prospect might appeal greatly to a group like the GOC, the Foundation isn't giving up their job so easily. While they have begun efforts to release a number of safe anomalies from their containment in order to slow down 6500, there also exist a handful of unique artifacts that might be able to contain or neutralize 6500 entirely. In part 1 we looked at the first of these, a sword known as the Leading Edge, and the path that a few Foundation members took to retrieve it, going through a village in Turkey, the Wanderer's Library, Alagata, and an interdimensional void. Let's take a look at another one. The second path is the Path of the Mage, which involves retrieving the Orichalcos Codex, an extremely powerful magical artifact that allows its users to perform rites and rituals on a universal scale, potentially capable of stopping and reversing SCP-6500 altogether. The Path of the Mage is titled Huddling Around the Fires, and begins just as the first path did, in Sloth's Pit, Wisconsin. This time, however, we begin with a thaumaturge named Catherine Sinclair, who is observing the local jam contest that is ongoing on Main Street. She ponders the low energy level of the event, as the town is dying due to the loss of magic in the world. Nexuses around the world have been wellsprings of thaumic energy for millennia, but now they're on death's door. Hundreds of people had left Sloth's pit, the trees were slow to bloom, and even food tasted worse. She knows that the situation is even worse outside of Nexuses, but she can't comprehend how. She's joined by her husband, Montgomery and the two begin to reminisce about how they used to play Pathfinder together, a tabletop role-playing game. He asks her why she never played a wizard over the course of the decade they played, only sorcerers, and she replies that wizards have to study to perform magic, and she could never get past that hurdle, as sorcerers have innate magical talent, much like thaumaturges. Catherine is a former member of the Serpent's Hand that joined the Foundation, as she thought she could do more good with them, but now she regrets that decision. As they walk through the jam contest, which is only sparsely populated, she remarks to Montgomery that she knows he wants to leave her. She says that she's nothing without magic, and she used to be able to conjure stellar fire and hurl it wherever she wanted but now she's lucky if she can throw a paper airplane six feet. Montgomery embraces her and assures her that it isn't true, but she tells him that she's going for a walk and she'll meet him back at the site. Montgomery had never seen her this distraught, even after losing an eye or the use of her hands for almost a year, but he doesn't know how to make her see that magic is not all she is. Catherine makes her way out to the center of Sloth's pit, to the edge of a bottomless hole that had originally swallowed up the home of Jackson Sloth, the town's founder, over a hundred years prior. 
In addition to being bottomless, it was also a pataphysical singularity, with one colleague referring to it as a plot hole that pulled in stories with its mass. Generally, unless you knew the trick, you could only find the pit once. As she stands on the edge of the pit, however, she can now see the bottom of it, only 30 feet down. At the bottom is the remains of Jackson Sloth's manor, which was the start of Sloth's pit's story, and is now ending. Catherine sits down at the edge and looks up, suddenly noticing that the sky is now dark. She had left the town at 3, but her watch now says 9.31. She says out loud to the pit that taking her on a six-hour time slip is contrived, even for it, and asks if this is some sort of last-ditch effort to cry for help. She begins tearing up and says that she can't save it, it's too late, and she's sorry. Above her, in the sky, a crimson light appears, brighter than the sun. Catherine realizes she can see it with both her real eye and her prosthetic one, and it's traveling with a leisurely trajectory, as if daring her to catch it as it flies towards the pit. She wouldn't be able to catch it normally, so she bites down on her thumb to draw blood in order to power a small spell. She pulls the falling object towards her, stopping the spell when she realizes that it would hit her. When it crashes into the ground, she stomps out the fire it caused on impact. The object appeared to be a piece of crystal, or glass, about one-seventh of a circle. It shines with the heat of a summer day and the light of a billion uncast spells. Catherine kneels down and takes out a small sample bag and a set of tweezers, but as she draws them near the object, light shoots out and knocks them away. Instead, she reaches out with her hand, finding it to not actually give off any heat, so she touches it. The world explodes into the smell of ink and dusty bookshelves, accompanied by the sound of wind howling through autumn leaves and an odd tingling that one only knows when they're in Sloth's pit. Catherine closes her eyes as she sees the world sevenfold, and feels her lungs fill with hearth fire. She awoke sometime later to the feeling of dew on her face, the morning sun rising, and the sound of dozens of voices calling her name. The crystal was still in her hand, although its glow was dimmer. More shockingly, she looked into the pit and saw no ruins at the bottom, but instead an endless hole. The voices came from a task force that had been searching for her all night, and one of them exclaims when he notices that the pit has returned. Catherine looks down at the crystal and then conjures a flame in her other hand, telling the team to get her back to her lab so she can figure out what exactly this thing is. An excerpt from an essay, later written by Catherine, explains that orichalcos, or more commonly called orichalcum, is an ill-understood substance originating from Atlantis. Some have conflated it with other alloys, but it's a crystal, high on the hardness scale, but easily broken. It was originally a crystal-based storage medium for both data and energy, 
with recovered samples capable of storing approximately 950 milliamp hours of power, and over 20 petabytes of data. The object that fell out of the sky above Sloth's pit was a fragment of an Orichalcos codex, which instead of storing electrical energy or data, stored magic. Catherine knew what she had to do when she held it that night. She had to go on a quest. Before that day had been over, Catherine had her bag packed and was heading out the door when she encountered her husband. She tells him that she's going on a quest, to find the other fragments. She plans on heading over to Site 43, where a doctor owes her a favor, and they have an uplink to the Orbital Anomaly Tracking System. She proceeds to cast a spell on the fragment, forming a golden chain around it so she can wear it as an amulet. Montgomery grabs his own suitcase to join her, and the two head off. We cut to the personal journal of Philip Deering, a janitorial and maintenance technician at Site 43. He had been kept there as an anomaly due to being the only individual able to speak with SCP-5056, a humanoid anomaly that manifested in reflective surfaces and followed Philip wherever he went. The anomaly had been following him for nearly 19 years, and he had come to refer to it as Doug. In his journal, he writes that the Foundation told him he's not anomalous anymore, as if he was ever anomalous to begin with. Doug had been the only interesting thing about him for nearly 19 years, and now he's gone. He refers to Doug as a gray-skinned, mirror-dwelling, gaslighting, belligerent, and creepy bastard, but at least he was never alone, unlike now. He writes that no one is ever going to read this, but at least Amelia is still here, a fellow technician. He feels like half a person without Doug, and Lake Huron, next to the site, looks different, with no more anomalies underneath it. He remarks that it's like there's no more color there, but he did find some color on his walk today, an object that looks like some sea glass, possibly from a beer bottle, although it's warm to the touch. He ponders showing it to Dr. Okori. Later that day, he writes that Dr. Okori is away on business right now with Ibanez, and they left for Sloth's Pit. They left the same day that a couple of people from Site 87 arrived, with rumors flying around that the Foundation is planning on liquidating the site. A doctor says that they're just here to use the orbital anomaly thingy, though. The following day, Philip writes that he had a crazy dream and thinks that this glass thing is anomalous. He was in a workshop that looked like a Foundation site, and he's reminded of Site 19 for some reason, probably because it's on everyone's mind after the GOC nuked it. In the workshop, someone brought a hammer on his head and shattered him, breaking into seven parts. He saw himself in all of them. A temperate rainforest, a rainy island, a mountainous port town, a bayou, a street in Portland, a bottomless pit, and Lake Huron. 
He knew where each part of himself was, and writes both that they must all be joined together and that they must never be joined together. He comments that he doesn't normally write like this, and blames the glass for making him a better writer. He decides to seek out a Dr. Reinders, even though it's three in the morning, to share this info. Security footage shows Philip carrying an unidentified yellow object, and heading to Dr. Reinders' quarters shortly after 3am. A few minutes after waking her and showing her the object, the two are seen walking together through the site, where they bump into Catherine and Montgomery. The group begins conversing, until Catherine compares her amulet to the object in Philip's hand, at which point the sight begins to shake. In Philip's journal, he writes that at first they thought it was an attack by the GOC when the sight started to shake. Apparently the GOC has been going a little nuts since the start of 6500, trying to take control wherever they can. Philip says that a few years ago, a woman named Brenda Corbin ran off with SCP-5866, the Babylonian goddess Tiamat. They all thought she was dead, along with Tiamat, when 6500 started, but suddenly she was standing there, on the shores outside of the site, riding Tiamat. Tiamat herself looked far worse for the wear all skin and bones, wings that looked like they'd been torn to shreds and covered in oil. Tiamat spoke through Corbin, telling the group that they have a piece of the Codex, and they need to give it to her so she can return magic to the world, and she will spare this place. Montgomery stepped forward and told the dragon that she knows what they hold, a way to revive magic for the whole world. They will not relinquish it, but they will bargain. Montgomery proceeded to take the crystal and use it to cast a spell, shouting Carpe Deus instead of Carpe Diem, meaning seize the god. Light shone through the crystal and enveloped the dragon in a coat of golden threads, which wove her back together, cleaned the oil off, restored her skin and wings. Afterwards, he said that this was a fraction of what they can do with this crystal. Tiamat said that they would need to make counsel with each other, but the sight would be spared for that day. Later, Philip took a nap and awoke to cheering and applause, and he saw Doug again in a nearby mirror. The format of the file then drastically changes into a form of Shakespearean play, the first section is listed as Act Tertius, Scene Primus, meaning Act 3, Scene 1. It's set on the island of High Brazil, a mythical place off the coast of Ireland, atop a mountain, and features a conversation between Catherine and none other than the gentleman explorer himself, Lord Blackwood. Blackwood apologizes to Catherine for the tongue they speak here, as the land has twisted their speech as a celebration of magic, but he finds it to be damnable and overly proper. Catherine also finds it to be an annoyance and a return to school times, as she wasted many a day reading The Bard, Shakespeare. Blackwood hopes she said this in jest, 
as reading the Bard could never be a waste. Catherine apologizes and says that iams taste foul to mage tongues, referencing the poetry term. She had feared that magic was lost forever, for ill, as she dare not say for good, since how can death be good? She asks Blackwood if he has learned of the attacks upon Foundation sites, and he says he has, but not by whom. Catherine replies that it's the Coalition, as they're now mad, but Blackwood says they've always been mad, calling them book-burning cads. He says they're counting down to obsolescence, and they seek control over the Thaumic world, as if they could tame magic. You'd sooner tame a Tarrasque than a mage, but he admits that they have been seen on High Brazil's shores. He asks her if the Codex is to thank for the return of magic, and she says that it is, and vigor fills her once more, along with worry. She's concerned what they would do if the Codex runs dry and magic finally ended. Blackwood understands her fear, but brings a warning of a man he once knew known as the Cleverest Crow. The scene ends, and the next one begins at a former Key Project facility, with Montgomery and High King Delbyth of High Brazil. The Key Project is part of SCP-5514, and is responsible for creating a massive mech to combat creatures that are essentially kaiju, as an agreement between the Foundation, the GOC, and Delbyth. Delbyth asks Montgomery how much he knows about the Codex, but Montgomery says he's just a simple consultant, and the mystic arts escape him much of the time. As an aside, he comments that speaking in pentameter is bad enough, He's glad that he doesn't have to rhyme. Delbyth says that the Codex is already bringing life back to Brazil, and everyone here is energized. Montgomery says that Catherine feels the same way, but still hesitates to perform rites, as her power has atrophied, and she either lacks will, or feels she does. A piece of the Codex landed here, on top of a mountain, but now there's only a crater there, with Delbyth suspecting that someone got to it already, likely the Coalition. He remarks that places throughout the world such as High Brazil, Sloth's Pit, and other nexuses are like rainforests of magic and life, but the Coalition are nothing but lumberjacks. A Coalition agent named Bo suddenly enters the scene, carrying the Codex Fragment, and refers to Montgomery as a hellish mage telling him to get back. Bo tells Montgomery that he has nary a way to stop him, and he's going to claim this fragment for the sake of control. Montgomery remarks that Bo's speech is off-meter, and Delbyth just laughs, saying that the GOC don't read the books they burn, and it's a wonder he could even find his way here. Bo claims that the GOC fractured the Codex in an attempt to control it, but it instead split and scattered across the world. Now they're planning to reclaim all the pieces and become the sole mages in the world. Delbyth proceeds to pull out a pistol and shoot Bo, giving him some advice of not monologuing. Bo still lives, however, shocked at Delbyth's use of a gun, 
but the High King merely says that he adapts while magic decays. Montgomery urges the king to chase after him, but Delbyth says that they still have a few lines left, apparently compelled to finish out the scene. The final scene of Act 3 returns to Blackwood and Catherine, now on the shores of the island. She asks him who this cleverest crow is, and Blackwood replies that they owe him their life, as he plucked thirteen men and women from the seas of chaos, all great thinkers. He is known as Zero, but Blackwood knew him as Norris Arclay, one of the names mentioned at the start of the 6500 file as 05-0. He was a mage, and while Blackwood acknowledges that Catherine is a strong mage, a solar storm, Norris was a supernova. He was apparently responsible for the creation of SCP-4538, a device capable of stopping nuclear detonations, and he both cured and cursed a place known as Dolvale, where Blackwood says that the denizens ate and lived in poison, and spiders lived in the snouts of dogs. Catherine interrupts Blackwood's monologue, telling him that she understands he is an arcane master, but doesn't get why she calls him a crow or cleverest. Blackwood simply compared the founders of the foundation to crows, as they wore black, were ominous, and ambitious. Arclay had come to him and offered a lot for Blackwood to join, but of course he refused. As for why he called him the cleverest crow, he can't remember. Agent Bo then appears on scene, limping, and draws a pistol aiming it at the codex fragment in his hand. He tells them to get back, and to let him get to his boat, or the fragment gets it. Catherine says that wonders never cease, and pulls out her two fragments, which draw in the one in Bo's hand. She tells him that for all the Foundation's flaws, they at least tried to preserve, and the Coalition would have made this world extinct eons past. Bo fires at Catherine, but misses, prompting Blackwood to pull out his rifle and shoot Bo in return. Bo is even more shocked at this gunshot, asking how it's possible that a sea slug just pulled out a gun from nowhere and shot him. Blackwood takes offense at being called a sea slug and Bo's use of profanity, as well as Bo not saying it in meter. Catherine takes the third Codex Fragment and joins it with the other two, asking Blackwood if they may stay the night before heading off to Argentina. As for Bo, Blackwood will alert the guard, but mentions that there are hungry things in the water still, wishing fair fortune to Bo. Bo begins to swear at Blackwood before being suddenly cut off, and the scene ends. The format changes again at this point, to a chapter from a draft for a book by Philip Verhoeten, titled The Refuge, The Role of the Nexus After the End of Anomalies. The chapter concerns his time in a nexus known as Puerto Extrano, one of the last nexuses to be discovered before the 6500 crisis began. It's also one of the youngest nexuses, and one of only a few with an extraterrestrial origin. In 1982, 
Argentina's Ministry of Science, Technology, and Innovation was tasked by Leopoldo Galtieri to secretly form a colony on the Antarctic Peninsula, under the pretense of a scientific expedition. In 1978, they had tried having a child born in Antarctica in order to claim it as their territory, but that hadn't worked out. The colonists landed on the Antarctic Peninsula on April 1st, 1982, one day before the Falklands War broke out between Argentina and the UK, which left them trapped there for 10 weeks. It's unknown what exactly occurred there during those 10 weeks, but when they finally returned to Argentina, they had a bizarre object in tow. The object resembled an ovoid pillar bulging out at both sides, with a tapered top and a flat bottom. When they began to study it, it had emitted a grey light which caused mutations among the colonists. This included gills, longer and shaggier body hair, grey sclera, and the extension of the first two fingers on their right hands by approximately 5 centimeters. This extension allowed the colonists to activate the pillar when arriving at the port, which turned out to be a terraformer. A massive wave of grey light was unleashed, transfiguring the climate and all organisms within into an alien state. The chloroplasts of the plants in the area turned a vibrant blue, and were now compatible with the newly grey sunlight. Animals mutated into bizarre parodies of themselves, and humans in the port developed lesser mutations similar to the colonists. Along with these mutations was a sort of hive mind, allowing for shared emotions among those affected, which weakened with distance from the Nexus. The port was isolated enough that it was merely shunned by the people of the nearby town, and wasn't discovered by the Foundation until 2009. The Foundation eventually built a site in the area, with the site director also acting as the mayor of the city. Philip marks this as an obvious conflict of interest, and a clear attempt by the Foundation to experiment with integrating personnel into local governments. When the 6500 crisis began, most expected two groups to survive, extraterrestrial anomalies and anomalous wildlife. In hindsight, the wildlife dine-out is not surprising, as they are still anomalous objects on Earth, contained or not, but most thought that extraterrestrial organisms and technology were simply beyond the current understanding of human science, and not natural laws. Thus, they were all shocked when SCP-2117, a massive spaceship, started to corrode, or when the entire civilization of SCP-3003, the human-like people infected by the Mars bugs, collapsed overnight. Puerto Extrano was one of three known nexuses with an extraterrestrial origin, and when the terraformer died, so did its inhabitants. Citizens were left choking on an oxygenated atmosphere, and both plant and animal life died off. This wasn't that big of a deal in the grand scheme of things compared to the geographic alterations to the dark side of the moon, or the reinstatement of Pluto's status as a planet, 
But now, humanity was alone, once and for all. Philip decided to dispatch himself to Puerto Extrano to have one last chance to study extraterrestrials. He notes that the worst part about the 6500 crisis was that very few people, if any, outside of the Foundation noticed it occurring. Some pieces of evidence were attributed to climate change, or changes in international relations, or incorrect theories. Philip thinks that it proved to the Foundation that they had wasted trillions in amnestic production, as most people are willing to believe that magic isn't real and settle for a far more mundane explanation if that helps them sleep at night. Days before the crisis was officially declared as extant, the O5s had been debating about whether or not to release evidence of extraterrestrial first contact to the public, but the delegation from the other planet spontaneously combusted minutes before the resolution could be voted upon, rendering the point moot. Some extraterrestrial strains did survive, with glimpses of them seen in the eyes of Puerto Extrano's inhabitants, who still retain many of their mutations. Philip writes that there's a listlessness to them, a hopelessness, which made him question where his loyalties lie. In all that hopelessness, though, a tiny spark fell from the sky. There was an unscheduled meteor shower on the night of April 26th, accompanied by intense migraines among those who still inhabited the town, Philip included. The meteor shower had a strange color to it, a green tint which lit the land below. Stars fell over the water, and one of them fell into the terraforming device. The land around the terraformer was a dead, wild jungle with animal carcasses and bizarre plants, but it had once been a lush epicenter. The green meteor collided with it and lit a gray fire. Philip describes what happened afterwards as feeling like a warm shower, sunburn, and a first kiss at the same time. Citizens that had been cut off from the hive mind suddenly found themselves reconnected, and Philip was caught in the crossfire. He compares it to sharing a brain with your best friends, family, and pets, and you're always happy to see each other, like a hug around your mind. The world was full of color in a way that it had not been since the crisis began, but somehow there was a sense that this too would fade. Catherine arrived a week later, with Philip claiming her to be one of the best thaumaturgists in the Western Hemisphere. He had seen her six months prior at a conference, and she had seemed miserable due to the effects of 6500, but now she seemed far more chipper and communicative. She said that she came here alone, and her husband was heading to Louisiana, where she would meet up with him. She met with the site director at the Nexus, and Philip was allowed to observe. Catherine told them that she planned on reviving magic as a whole, and she needed their help. More precisely, she needed the object which had caused the terraformer to start up again. Unfortunately, the neural network created by the terraformer has a very strong tendency for self-preservation, and when the director showed her the crystal, 
A fear came over the entire town that she was going to take it and the terraformer would die once again. The director proceeded to draw his gun and ordered Catherine to step away, with the network seeing her as both an infestation and a dangerous predator that needed to be removed before she destroyed the whole colony. Catherine, of course, refused to back down, so while she was distracted by the director, Philip hit her in the back of the head with a chair, and she was taken into custody. Afterwards, Philip felt sick and went to see her to apologize. He found her in tears in the corner of her cell, which surprised him, and she turned to face him, showing the left side of her face covered in blood. When he had hit her, her prosthetic eye had fallen out, but now it had been replaced with a red, orange, and yellow orb, one that thrummed with power. He knew that this new eye could see him, and when she blinked, the blood evaporated from her face, and the eye assumed a more natural color. Her body now brimmed with magic, and she simply stepped through the plexiglass divider holding her in, putting a hand to Philip's forehead and compelling him to sleep. He awoke twelve hours later, finding the crystal gone and the rest of the entire site incapacitated, but the town was still whole. Catherine had taken a vehicle from the site and driven to the nearest airport, leaving a note of apology behind. Philip left the town quickly, not wanting to spend another second in a place that could compel him to such violence for the sake of preserving itself. Catherine was heading for Louisiana, and the nexus there, La Rue Macabre. The next section is from an unnamed individual who writes that he was walking through New Orleans, walking the same path he did every day to try and get into the La Rue Nexus. He had been trying to get into La Rue since the start of the 6500 crisis, but it had apparently vanished until today. He sees a party going on, as if nothing had ever happened, and even sees the Bayou Boys there, a Foundation MTF. With the Bayou Boys were some strangers, including a girl with fire hair, Catherine, and a man with respectable dreads, Montgomery. He says they both looked like tourists, and the girl reeked of bug spray. They were speaking with a man named Papa Legba, one of the leaders of LaRue, and Catherine was speaking very properly, as if she knew what she was dealing with. He thinks that she was speaking too properly, as another one of the higher-ups in the Nexus, Old Man Nancy, was looking at her as if she was an annoying fly. The people of LaRue seem to blame the Foundation for causing LaRue to temporarily disappear. Montgomery stepped in to explain that they've come to remake all of the magic, not just in LaRue, and they need their piece of the Codex. Old Man Nancy proceeds to accuse the Foundation of being racist, partly due to the fact that the Foundation keeps people in bondage, the D-Class. Montgomery informs him that they've all been released, as there's no need for them anymore, but Nancy says that that doesn't make the original ones okay. Montgomery then asks why they're okay with the Bayou Boys, as they're part of the Foundation, 
but Nancy says that they're part of LaRue. He then holds up a pure blue crystal, a piece of the codex, and uses it to hypnotize Catherine and Montgomery, and he has them strung up in front of the Never and Not Bar and Grill. The two beg to be let down, and Catherine almost got out once, but Nancy is a powerful mage himself and managed to keep her in place. He also cast a spell on her that caused her to spit out spiders whenever she spoke for the following hour. This is all interrupted by the arrival of a dozen individuals, all wearing GOC insignias. Nancy ordered everyone out of LaRue, and one of the GOC agents, a man who moved like he had a bullet in his shoulder, stepped up to Nancy and put a gun to his chest. The man, Agent Bo, told Nancy to give up the object, or else he and all of the other LaRue regulars will die. Nancy tried to cast a spell on the GOC, but Bo proceeded to snatch the crystal that was around Nancy's neck, and then shot him ten times. This caused all of the plants and animals in LaRue to start screaming, and spider silk started pouring out of Nancy's chest, entangling Bo's hand and burning him. Old Man Nancy is apparently a large spider taking human form. Bo pulled away, but broke the crystal in the process. Montgomery gets let down and tries to jump at Bo, but LaRue is completely falling apart. Nancy sheds his human skin completely and continues to produce more and more webs to try and hold LaRue together, as Bo uses the crystal to open a portal, allowing all of the GOC to leave. Catherine and Montgomery both try to heal Nancy, but it would take more than ten shots to kill him. Instead, they take the other pieces of the codex and combine it with what's left of the blue one, giving it to Nancy to let him fix LaRue. Afterwards, the writer says that he knew that LaRue was never going to close down, and magic was never going to die. A newspaper article from Boring, Oregon, home of Wilson's Wildlife Solutions, informs us that the head of WWS, Feowyn Wilson, purposefully released a number of animals. The facility there had been in danger of shutting down following a period that Feowyn called global environmental decline that is detrimental to the ecosystems that support their critters. In the past month, however, WWS experienced a massive resurgence in business, following what was reported as a meteor strike in their facility. The object resembled an indigo shard of glass, and had been on display in their main building as part of a fundraising effort. In the early hours of Monday morning, two individuals, Catherine and Montgomery, arrived at the front gate of the complex, along with several members of the local county sheriff's department. Feowyn was seen letting them into the facility, followed by witnesses reporting bursts of indigo light coming from within the facility, and then several animals breaking loose. Witnesses report that Feowyn was seen riding an animal described as a unicorn with claws instead of hooves, while holding the indigo glass 
with speculation that she was using the glass to control the animals. Notable incidents of damage include the raising of the town's preschool facilities by a giant wombat, a small forest fire set by deer with flaming antlers, and several individuals reporting strange dreams following the sighting of a tapir. The two individuals seen entering the complex appear to have been attempting to engage in a dialogue with Feowin, and the reporter tried to approach them for a comment, but they were busy fighting what appeared to be a sheep that was emitting large amounts of electricity. Remarkably, there were no fatalities and only one injury, with one woman apparently being gored by the unicorn that Feowin was riding, although she's currently in stable condition. Feowin is now in police custody after surrendering herself, and she released a statement. She said that things have been dying for years now due to an ecological crisis that none of us are aware of. The critters are just one part of it, and when she saw the gemstone from the sky and how it was revitalizing the critters, she couldn't help herself. When her supervisors came to collect it, she got mad as she wanted the animals to protect themselves. She claims that they let themselves out of their own cages when she grabbed the glass and told them to protect themselves. The current whereabouts of several of the animals are unknown, with an organization called Stop Cruelty Towards Pets being handed temporary ownership of WWS. Montgomery, a spokesperson for the organization, assured the newspaper that they will continue to provide services equivalent to or greater in quality than those provided by WWS. The woman that had been gored by the unicorn turned out to be Catherine, who was currently healing in the Oregon Health and Science University Hospital. She had specifically asked to be taken there because she knew of a portal here that led to three Portlands, another anomalous nexus. The portal was in a vending machine inside of the nurse's lounge, and it would have normally been easy enough to disguise herself with magic as an overly tired nurse and sneak in, but there was a complication. There was an armed guard outside of the lounge wearing riot gear with anti-magic grenades on his belt. While observing him, she's approached by Montgomery, who tells her that she should be resting. She can't rest with a way to three Portlands and the last shard here, along with coalition agents everywhere. She says Montgomery doesn't know what the GOC is going to do with the Codex, but he asks if it would be any worse than what the Foundation would do, likely keeping magic on a leash. She's not going to let that happen, even if she has to stare down the council in person. She's still trying to figure out how to get into the lounge, but Montgomery tells her to think, as there's more than one way into three Portlands from here. She tapped the codex that occupied her left eye, thinking a command to seek out the portals. A line of golden light led them into a nearby elevator, and the codex guided them to open the way. They emerged into the main atrium of Deer College's science campus, the primary university in Three Portlands. Oddly though, a forest was growing inside of the building, 
with a massive pine tree in the center growing right up through the roof. They step outside, finding an area that resembled a temperate rainforest more than a college campus, with Catherine commenting that it was like the Pacific Northwest decided to invade. She guesses that the Codex that landed here woke up the Mayor of Three Portlands, a genius Loki that is responsible for creating and maintaining the Nexus. When it woke up, it saw that everyone was gone, because magic had broken down, so it decided to remake Three Portlands into something that was more… human-free. Catherine uses the Codex to seek out the last shard, not noticing the elevator opening behind them. The final Codex fragment hung suspended over the college's campus seal, a three-foot-wide sculpture of stone and steel sitting in the middle of a grove of evergreens. Montgomery wonders why it's floating there, unlike the others, until Catherine notices that it's being suspended by a nanowire, as a trap or merely a distraction. She suddenly smacked in the back and knocked to the ground, hearing boots all around her as a muzzle is pressed to the back of her neck. They proceed to snap the nanowire and combine the fragment with a blue one, held in Agent Bo's hands. He tells Catherine that they're going to bulldoze Sloth's pit, and asks her if she remembers what he said in High Brazil. She recalls that the Coalition wants all the magic in the world, although she can't imagine why. If they found out that Narnia was real, they'd roll in as many A-bombs as possible, press the detonator, and shut the wardrobe behind them. He says it's a bit more complex than that, comparing magic to iron. By itself, iron doesn't do much aside from keeping the world spinning, but it can be refined by humans and made into everything from butter knives to gun barrels. Thaumaturges have been doing that with magic for centuries, but without any control. The GOC aims to bring control over magic, under their terms. The agent holding her down proceeds to stand her up, and she feels two points of heat on her back, hears a pair of pops and a pained wail, and feels warmth run down both sides of her. Blood begins to pour into her mouth, and she's laid back down on the seal as her vision starts to go gray. The codex is being extracted from her left eye socket as she hears two more gunshots, and Montgomery lands next to her. Bo begins to walk off, trying to combine the pieces of the codex, and Catherine thinks that she could spend her last effort to teleport the codex back to the foundation, or she could save her husband. She says that he needs to promise her that he'll stop them and find the Codex, but he says there's no point, as a world without her and a world without magic are the same thing. She desperately looked around for any help, but she could feel the magic leaving Three Portlands as it died. She finally noticed a blue light in Montgomery's pocket, reaching in to find a shard of the blue fragment that had been broken off in La Rue. She grabbed his phone and called for personnel down at Deer College, and then grabbed the fragment and Montgomery's hand. 
She tells him that this magic will sustain them until help arrives, but he has to repeat the words, De the Stereaso. He can't make the sounds, however, so she begs him to say it in English, as, I will not fade. They continued the chant as noontime passed overhead, and thus ends the path of the mage. In the debriefing, we're unfortunately informed that both Catherine and Montgomery have been posthumously awarded the Foundation Medal of Honor, and a funeral would be held for both in Sloth's Pit. Residual narrative energies were manipulated to ensure that forces of the GOC, led by Agent Bo, would attempt to invade Sloth's Pit on the day of the funeral, with the vast majority of the site attending. The Coalition successfully occupied the main urban center of the town, and attempted to capture all Foundation personnel or allied civilians while planning to invade the nearby site. Narrative forces within Sloth's Pit greatly hindered their efforts, however. An unexpected reunion between an agent of the Coalition and her former grieving fiancé who believed her to be dead caused the entire strike team to turn against Bo's forces. A group of teenagers incapacitated several agents and stole weaponry and supplies, which were then used to fortify various schools within the city. An anomalous individual known as the Jam Burglar suddenly re-emerged, hindering broadcasts and transmissions sent by Coalition forces, and several dozen survivalists distributed a vast array of weaponry to citizens trained to use it, while simultaneously providing shelter to civilians in bunkers of currently unknown size. Things culminated with Bo breaching the Foundation's site, where he attempted to reach the director's office in what is speculated to have been an assassination attempt. The director had been evacuated several hours prior, however, and instead he found Catherine and Montgomery, who were severely injured, with Catherine nearly having lost her unborn child, but both had survived and were recovering. Bo attempted to use energy from the Codex to subdue the two, but since they had been exposed to the Codex for over a month prior to his acquisition, the Codex had become attuned with their being. This allowed Catherine to work a spell which removed it from Bo's possession. His body was then subjected to the weight of malignant narrative he had carried since his entry into Sloth's pit, meaning that he, as the villain, needed to get his comeuppance, causing him to have a heart attack. He's currently in critical condition, but is expected to recover and stand trial. Two paths, two artifacts, two different ways to solve 6500, and two more to go. One would have thought that the GOC would have merely sat back with their feet up on the desk and a cigar in their mouths, but it seems they're just as keen in maintaining a purpose in the world as the Foundation, and they'll do whatever it takes to keep control. Perhaps because the GOC is no stranger to utilizing anomalies themselves, and much of their organization relies on the power of the paranormal. Either way, they're far from the last group that we'll see scrambling during the 6500 crisis, as we'll see during the other two paths, the cleric and the thief.